Today's episode of Lions of Liberty is sponsored by Ammo.com. And if you've ever wanted to save money purchasing ammunition while helping a libertarian cause, well, this is your lucky day because, you see, Ammo.com is run by fans of this program, fellow liberty lovers like yourself, and they want to give back to Lions of Liberty fans by offering $20 off any order over $200. Not only that, but they will redirect 1% of every sale to a pro-freedom organization such as the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the Institute of Justice, and many more. Not only can you save money, but you can rest well knowing you are supporting a great liberty cause. So head on over to ammo.com slash lionsofliberty, or just click the link conveniently located over at today's show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 371. You're much better off when you're, when you're visible than you are when you're quiet and, and certainly when you're apologetic. If you're apologetic and, and quiet, you're, you're just easily dismissed. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. What's up, kitty cats, and welcome on back to the flagship, the original Lions of Liberty podcast. I've been doing this puppy for over five years. Can you believe that? And I certainly couldn't have kept doing this for so long without A, you guys, people actually listening to the show, sharing the show, talking about the ideas of liberty, but also without my compatriots in crime, (laughs) not in crime, actually, in Liberty, my good friends, Brian McWilliams and John Odermatt, who have their own shows on Lions of Liberty. Of course, you can hear Brian every single Wednesday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. You can also hear John with some amazing, compelling stories on his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday, a very, very important show. So be sure to listen to all of the shows here on Lions of Liberty. And of course, for a very limited time, just through the end of October, we also have shows every Tuesday and every Thursday where we feature libertarian candidates across the country on Candidates of Liberty. If you are appreciative of all the work we do to right now bring you five shows per week, Plus, we do a ton of content on Patreon, so head on over to patreon.com slash lionsliberty to support the show and get even more content. With that being said, I'm very, very excited to bring you today's interview. It's a really, really interesting one. Let's get right to it. My guest today is a clinical professor of liberal studies at New York University, and he caused quite a stir on social media when he started an anti-PC Twitter account. We'll talk about that later on. He is also recently the author of the book Springtime for Snowflakes, Social Justice and Its Postmodern Parentage. I'm very, very pleased to welcome Professor Michael Rechtenwald. Michael, are you ready to roar? Yes, I am. Let's roar. All right. Excellent. And you know, you've been roaring on your Twitter feed, so to speak, uh, for a little while here, and it has definitely caused quite a stir, yep. uh, at least online anyway. And uh, we'll, we'll get more into that stuff you know, as we get into things. But I kind of wanted to start by you know, talking about you, you've really gone through a, a political and, and philosophical transformation over the years. So I wanted to kind of start first by asking you, what was your political ideology like, say, you know, 20 or so years ago? I don't, I don't want to date you wholly here, but uh, yeah. whenever you first came into the university system and, and became a professor. What was your ideology at that time? Yeah, I'd say 20 years ago, I was what I would call a radical Democrat. So a very activist, radical, left 
Democrat, that is, uh, you know, supporter of the Democratic Party, but trying to push the party left. And uh, so, for example, I used to appear on uh, Joe Scarborough's show. It was called Scarborough Country uh, on MSNBC, you know, probably 15 years ago. Oh, yeah. I remember watching that show back, back when I still watched cable. Okay. Yeah. And I was the liberal pundit. Uh, you know, Joe Scarborough was totally, you know, decidedly more to the right then than he is now, or putatively is. It's real hard to say. You know, so I was uh, really critical of uh, the Iraq War. Uh, I believed that, uh, uh, and I probably still think, though, that uh, Gore actually won the 2000 election. So after the 2000 election, I started a group called Citizens for Legitimate Government to. Uh, protest uh, Bush and the what we thought was the coup and the stealing of the 2000 election with the help of the Supreme Court. And then, as I got further into academia and also disenchanted with Democrats, I started to transform into a Marxist uh, by about three years ago, two, two and a half years ago. Uh, no, it started really five years before that. I was a left communist. Uh, that is... Um, I accepted the premises of communism, but I rejected the consequences of the Bolshevik Revolution. And um, also, you know, there was a, there was a tradition that, that, that fell in line with the same view. Uh, they were active in England and in Italy and uh, some of them in Russia, but the, uh, in the Soviet Union, but they were killed, most of them. Uh, I believed that socialist revolution uh, in the hands of the actual working class would be uh, establish a kind of democratic economic democracy, if you will. But then, you know, so that, that's where I was up until this latest, this latest transformation, which I think is decisive in terms of where it's led me, and that is to libertarianism and the belief in the marketplace as a, an essential element, essential atmosphere environment for individual liberty and um, for, for individual rights. Wow, Michael, that is a, really an incredible pathway in so many ways. I, I think it's a pretty amazing journey that you took even before you got to where you are now, um, and, and really even to the point that you're actually calling yourself a libertarian at this point, uh, where even a couple of years ago, you were at the point of calling yourself a Marxist. Uh, right. I, I'm kind of curious. I want to dig in a little bit more on on why why did you become d- disenchanted with the Democratic Party, and why did that leave you, lead you to just become even more farther to the left, to, be, to actually become where you to the point where actually identified as a Marxist. What what caused that change, and, and why did you divert that direction instead of, say, I don't know, hopping over to the Republicans or something like that? Interestingly, uh, a decisive turning point was uh, uh, when Obama was uh, the nominee. Uh, actually, he was already the president-elect, uh, and the uh, and he decided to, uh, you know, he decided to uh, support Bush's bailout. Uh, you know, the, the tr- uh, 700... Uh, trillion dollar bailout of uh, Wall Street and the banks uh, with the 2008 financial crisis. I decided that his, his acceding to Bush's uh, demands that we support this bailout was a, a sure sign that he was a complete fraud and that he had no way, no way did he have the interests of Main Street versus Wall Street at, at heart. I thought there, there, there's no clear sign that he's a fraud. And then I contacted a socialist party, a Trotskyite party, 
uh, in New York because I had just started at NYU at this time, 2008, fall of 2008. And I started to, uh, I was, I started to associate with this Trotsky, Trotsky, I parted this, the Socialist Equality Party. They go by, they have a website, the World Socialist website. And, uh, I tried to get admission into this party, but they didn't. Ha- they wouldn't have me after all. Why, why, why couldn't you join the party? Were you not left enough? Too left? Too- <laughs> they said that my my thinking was too inflected by postmodern theory. <laughs> oh, interesting. Which, well, well, we'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah, which is very ironic in, in light of recent uh, events. <laughs> right. Right. So, and really, they quite. I don't think they quite understood where I was coming from on some things. I did research in the history of science, and in, in, uh, I argued things like, uh, you know, that social factors have a great deal to do with the direction of science and things like that, and they didn't like that. They were very much more positivistic in their outlook, and uh, so, you know, and I also claimed that, you know, you could critique Darwin for various, uh, for various, uh, from various positions or from various points of view, and they didn't like that at all either. Uh, so they were very scientific, and also they just thought that they never had a university professor in their ranks before, and they couldn't imagine me being part of the party. Uh, so then I swung even further towards, uh, this is when I swung towards left communism, uh, which is not Trotsky. I, it's, um, it's a tradition that uh, is critical of both of Trotsky and, and Stalin and Lenin and the whole Bolshevik um, crew, you know, counting all of them. So that's basically how I got into that. And I started writing essays from that standpoint. I, I wrote a lot of essays from that standpoint and published them. And they were widely read. So it's funny, you have a whole lot of works out there right now floating around that, that you've written in the past that really reflect uh, are a completely different view than the one you hold now, just a, just a few years later. Right, that's right. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, I, I was very much, uh, you know, deeply immersed in um, Marxist economic theory as well as social theory, you know, so there's different avenues of Marxism that I was, uh, that I was into. One of them was, you know, economic theory. And I I have some papers on uh, the economic crisis. And also I held that the problem was a crisis with capitalism and a crisis of profit. And that uh, that problem was only going to be exacerbated uh, as the profit margin uh, continued to decline because of the Marxist notion of the uh, tendency, of the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to decline. I mean, it's very complicated stuff, but I'm sure if you're if you're uh, a libertarian economically, then you understand these things. I think it's bogus now. Have you have you gone back and read some of your stuff from that period? And and like, does it make you cringe at all? Or I mean, have you even thought maybe about? It would, I think it'd be pretty interesting to see you write sort of a in a, a counter to one of your own papers from you yeah. know from that point of time. I have a, I haven't really looked at that stuff for a while. Um, I'm not ashamed of it because I was you know I was being earnest and sincere intellectually. Sure. And um, that's you know I I had. I would say from uh, from the standpoint of the present, definitely ideological blinkers on that I couldn't really see. And it wasn't until uh, the left attacked me so viciously that they were peeled off of my eyes and I was able to see things that I just couldn't see before. It's, it's very interesting because Marxists claim that everybody else is under ideology. But the funny thing is, is they're under it worse than anybody. 
<laughs> so when did those those cracks first start to emerge in in Marxist ideology for you? Was was it around the time you started to notice the problems w- with PC culture, or, yeah. or was there something else that started things for you? It was the social justice left, and uh, my chagrin that I was critical. I was always critical as a Marxist of identity politics, uh-huh. and therefore of social justice. Right. But then, to my chagrin, uh, with the election of Trump there was a kind of circling of the wagons of leftists and liberals and everybody basically consolidating into this so-called resistance. And I noticed that even the communist left was basically, you know, basically adopting social justice views. And I found that to be very, very disheartening and, you know, disturbing. And uh, so I continued to critique it. And uh, when I really came out as the anti-PCNYU prof, anti-PC NYU prof, I, I couldn't believe the vitriol that I faced from every segment of the left, every million, uh, and liberals, everybody. What was it specifically? Was there a specific event that, that first kind of sparked this for you? Or was it just kind of a, a you know, over time you saw these things propping up, um, you know, things like trigger warnings and safe spaces and, and that sort of thing? It was it just yeah. sort of a general culture you saw creeping in? It was the culture of creeping in and then there was a couple. There were a couple tipping point events. One was the, uh, the, the student at uh, the University of Michigan who, when given a choice of his pronoun preference, uh, plugged into his pro- uh, profile through the Wolverine system. There, he plugged in His Majesty, and I simply posted a link to this article on Facebook and was roundly attacked by hundreds and hundreds of people and called a trans a transphobe, a traitor. Uh, have having committed a discursive violence and all kinds of other lunacy claims. And that was the tipping point. I created the anti-PC NYU prof Twitter handle that very night uh, and started to tweet. I put up a, it was anti-PC NYU prof. I used Nietzsche, uh, the, and a, a picture of Nietzsche as the avatar. <laughs> and I promised to expose the uh, viral identity politics and social justice excesses of the university system as an NYU professor. I was anonymous at this point. I think calling myself the deplorable NYU prof, anti-PC NYU prof, uh, using, uh, adopting an avatar of Nietzsche, I think the left just thought this looks like uh, this guy is a, a Trump supporter. And, uh, but I wasn't. I was, I was, a lot of it was satire in terms of the avatar and the uh, and, and sort of like the, there was sort of some satirical excesses to what I was saying. I did that on purpose just to get things, you know, very roundly out there. I mean, it does it does tie in very much to the Trump phenomenon, though, because I think in in many ways one of the biggest reasons for Trump's popularity or you know his ability to capture those voters is because he made people see them on his side. And one of the biggest th- issues where he people just roundly see him as on their side is this anti-PC issue. Uh, uh, no matter what what the criticisms of Trump, and I have many, 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 every, almost everyone, including the PC people, agree he's about as anti-PC as possible. So I, if that's a backlash to this movement in, any, in many ways has, has fueled Trump. Yes, I think that was part of it, definitely. It was that he had had, you know, made many comments against PC, although he never really specified what was wrong with it. Secondly, I think that the Trump phenomenon represents the fallout of those people who are not others, you know, that not non-subordinated others that, that the, the Democratic Party not only didn't cater to, but totally castigated and, you know, basically shamed, shunned, 
denigrated, called, you know, clinging to their Bibles and guns, called them flyover people, and then effect, eventually called them a basket of deplorables. Uh, when they, when Clinton called uh, them a basket of deplorables, I sided with them, not so much Trump, but with them. In solidarity with deplorables, I called myself deplorable, not because I was supporting Trump so much, but because I felt that those people were the most maligned uh, contingent in our culture. I'm kind of curious, like, you know, obviously you, you, you got a lot of attention for this anti-PC pr- professor. Uh, I believe the actual handle is anti-PC NYU prof. That's right. And um, you started tweeting and you were anonymous at first. That's right. uh, now, were, when you first did that, obviously you, you were anonymous for a reason because you knew you were going to get a lot of backlash. Mm-hmm. Were you concerned at all, even from the start, about, you know, people finding out who you were? Obviously, you revealed yourself eventually. But, I mean, was that is there a concern that this could cause trouble for you at the university? And uh, yeah, it did, was, it did was, which we'll discuss in a bit. Yeah, definitely. That's why I was anonymous at first. I, I thought, you know, I really want to say these things. I really think these things. Although I, you know, like I said, there was a sort of satirical excesses here and there, but I wanted to say the things that I was saying in essence, and I was nervous about doing it, and I was afraid, even though I was anonymous, that I would be discovered. And though when the, uh, but when the uh, NYU reporter contacted me through direct message and said, "Are you really?" and you know, they had uh, somehow my tweets had in, uh, insinuated themselves into her uh, alerts, and she said, "Are you really an NYU professor?" and I said, "Yes." And she said, well, would you like to have it, uh, do an interview? And I said, yes. I wasn't sure I'd go on the record. But after doing the interview, I thought, you know what? What I'm saying here actually needs to be said. So I'm going to say it, and somebody's got to say it. It might as well be me. I thought, I'll take the chance. And, um, you know, went on the record with the interview and made further criticisms in that interview. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the other things that really disturbed me was the institution in 2016 at NYU of a bias reporting hotline, which uh, was a, is a hotline that you're able to, to email or call or in some places, you know, report, you know, report using an app on your phone, a bias incident or microaggression that you might see either in the classroom or anywhere else uh, involving NYU people, even off campus. And so I thought this was a surveillance state that they were setting up. And I, th- I still think it's a really pernicious development. They have these response, these bias hotlines that you can report anonymously to, you know, to report your classmates or your professors for indiscretions. It certainly feels creepy. It's very creepy, especially at a college campus where, in theory, we it should be real the the place where the the freest thought is encouraged. You know, exactly. that's where you're supposed to be developing your thoughts, and you know, to develop your thoughts, you need to hear every possible point of view on things. Yes, and it was a, it it creates a chilling effect, which is the worst kind of effect to create in, a, in an environment in which rigorous debate is supposedly uh, encouraged, in fact, uh, and developed. So that was I thought it to be something very very pernicious, and also. They asked me to put this on my syllabus, you know, to, to devote like a few lines to this, and I refused. Uh, they didn't require it, but uh, they were encouraging it, and I refused. And I think I told them I refused, and I got n- not too nice of a response about that. So when I did finally come out, I guess people weren't entirely surprised, but they were. And they were pretty much surprised, and uh, the critiques I made, I thought, were perfectly legitimate. And still, I was making them from the left, as far as I understood it. Right. So is that the interview that that revealed your identity at that point in time? Yes. 
I ha- there was even a picture of me in that in that interview. So you came you came all the way out with that one. So what? How long was it before someone from the university uh, contacted you and said, uh, you know, we we got to talk about what, what you're doing here? Forty eight hours or less. <laughs> Uh, within two days, everything had already taken place. The, the ball started, must have started rolling immediately upon the appearance of that interview because within two days, uh, a, a, an official NYU committee, diver- the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Group, uh, responded with an open letter denouncing me roundly. I mean, really, wow. uh, denunciation. This letter is the bane of my existence as far as I'm concerned. This letter this official letter from an official NYU committee calling me guilty for the structure of my thought was really, to me, it still stands as, it irks me to no end, and it really is the real cause of the major problem. And then at the same time, on the same day that that appeared, I was put on a paid medical leave of absence. I was very strongly coerced into it. So how did that work? You were I mean, you say strongly coerced, like, was there a specific threat? They said, you must go on this or else, or was it just strongly implied that? Well, let's put it this way. I was called into the dean's office. It wasn't my idea. I didn't contact the dean and say, I think I'm going crazy. I need a leave of absence. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Instead, they con he contacted me and said, I'd like to see you today, you know, between your classes. So I went there and I said, of course I, and I, very strong presentiment about what it was about, that it would be about the, the, the interview, the tweets, blah, blah, blah. And at the same time, I was still a little bit sh- shocked that I was actually being called in for my, for, my, for my views, which were a legitimate exercise of academic freedom. I mean, unlike the Georgetown professor who recently suggested that the, the male senatorial supporters of Kavanaugh should be killed, castrated, and have their genitals fed to uh, pigs, <laughs> oh, I well, said, that seems I, seems like a perfectly reasonable thing for a university yeah, professor. Who got, who got no chastisement from the university, by the way. I was wow. chastised for criticizing bias reporting hotlines, safe spaces, and trigger warnings. Okay? So, I mean, it's unbelievable, right, the, the disparity here, the double standard. Um, but, yeah, he calls me in, pulls me very close, and says, I just want you to know that this, this – uh, this conversation has nothing to do with your Twitter account. Or the- <laughs> and did he say that with a straight face? I mean, with a straight I- <laughs> face because he's a, he was, he's a Dean, you know, administrators are so good at double, you know, administrative speak, right. they say anything that, it, you know, the complete Orwellian opposite of the truth uh, with the, the most utmost conviction. He expects you to believe that by by pure coincidence, he just up and decided, in no relation to this article that just revealed you as this anti-PC NYU professor, that you yeah. maybe are just a little stressed out and need some time off. And then, yes, that's right. And then he said, Unreal. and if you don't mind, uh, the head of human resources is here. If you don't mind, I would like to have her join us. So here I am being called in now two major administrators, right? And they suggest right away, uh, he says, he goes on to say, people are concerned about you because they think that this Twitter account, here we go. <laughs> it has nothing to do with that, I thought. Wait a minute. <laughs> Which this conversation has nothing to do with, by the way, <laughs> is a cry for help. Okay. Oh, my God. So they actually yeah. tried to construe it as a sign that I was losing my mind because I must be crazy to differ with the social justice left in my department uh, and the university at, at large. And I, you know, I mean, and uh, I was, uh, I had a, p- a promotion that was uh, 
on the table that had been uh, pending since April of this previous of the same year. This was now October, and they still hadn't made decisions about it. And I, you know, that was at stake. I felt a strong pressure, like we really want you to do this, and um, and and so I, I I agreed. But then after I left the meeting, I found out that. Uh, that they had written this open letter. I didn't know about the open letter before the meeting, and that, that just came out like almost at the same time that I was in the meeting, apparently. It was published, and I was denounced, and I saw that the whole department and the whole administrative... Uh, I saw the whole administrative machinations that had gone on behind the scenes that basically moved in unison to condemn and dismiss me for a period of time. And then I got a call from the Post, the New York Post, and this was uh, just five minutes after the meeting. And she says, basically, uh, you know, I want you to know the Post is following your case. I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't even know what. What, what are they, the, the cops? What do you mean, follow, following your case? <laughs> is the FBI now? <laughs> and, and we were very supportive of your position. I said, oh, that's good. But what's the, what do you mean? She said, you know, so we're, we're very we're very much supportive of your position, and we just we disdain the way that the university is treating you. And I didn't know what she was. How could she possibly know about how they were treating me, unless she was in the room or had a bug on the wall during the meeting? Right. But she, you know, she was referring to the open letter, which I hadn't known about. And then I really glanced. I, I read read it over while we were talking, and I said, Do you think there's any connection between all this? The, you know, my Twitter account, the interview, the open letter, and the uh, strongly encouraged leave of absence. And she almost <laughs> broke out laughing, really. I mean, it, it's and it's laughable if it wasn't so serious. Yeah, she said, you must be kidding. She said, I've been a reporter for 15 years, and I can tell when there's connection and causality. Believe me, there's no doubt about it in this case. They're, they're putting you on leave to get rid of you. And I was like, oh, my God. So I, I had no choice. I felt... I felt I had no choice but to go public now because if I didn't, I thought that, you know, she's very suggestive of the idea that if I didn't go public and I think she was possibly right, they would just bury me. I would be gone. And, and that would be it. I mean, so, I, so, so do you have any kind of like a tenure uh, that, that protects your uh, job? Well, or are you program does not have tenure. We have rank, but we don't have tenure. So I'm on a con I was on contract basis. Right. Still on co uh, contract basis, long-term contracts that are endlessly renewable. But nevertheless, it's more contingent than than tenure. That's for sure. Sure, but they could they could push you out if they so oh, chose yeah. to force the issue for various reasons. And right. So, so do you think it's your your kind of your outspokenness now that they they are hesitant to do that because even if they might not like what you're saying, it kind of proves your point. If they if they if they oh, yeah, do. absolutely. I mean, the thing is, I've learned. And I think I would say this to anybody facing similar circumstances, whether they intend, you know, initiated them or not. You're much better off when you're when you're visible than you are when you're quiet and and certainly when you're apologetic. If you're apologetic and and quiet, you're, you're just easily dismissed. But if you're public and in the public eye and have support and can get on the news and get on, you know, various TV shows and things like that. Yes, you have much greater chance of surviving, much greater. And just, you know, there's a gentleman that uh, in Canada that lost his job for making critiques of uh, PC culture. And he, I don't think he approached it the right way. I think he got apologetic. He, he, he was um, too careful. 
he, he, he stopped, you know, he started to curtail his views, things like that. And I think that's a mistake. You should become more emboldened and uh, actually, you know, uh, you know, basically, like you say, you, you have to prove, let them prove that you're right. Dismissing it. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Are those dry, boring, run-of-the-mill political talk shows putting you to sleep on your commute or at work? Are you ready for some fun? Look no further, Blast Off with Johnny Rocket is a Seattle-based podcast expressing viewpoints of free markets, voluntary exchange, badass music, wicked banner, and of course, drinking. The Blast Off doesn't shy from the truth, but always brings the party. Let's rock and roll, Raylene. Bring it on, Johnny. You can check us out at thelaunchpadmedia.com forward slash Blast Off. Again, that's thelaunchpadmedia.com forward slash Blast Off. Launchpad Media. Always launching ideas in your direction. I'm curious, Michael, at what point uh, during all of this did your view of PC culture and uh, your outspokenness on this, when did this start to lead to a broader change in your political views? Because, I mean, that's a, that's a still a pretty big sweeping change, especially because you said even when you started doing this, you were still doing it from the point of view of the left. So how did this lead you to this deeper philosophical journey where you actually now call yourself a libertarian? I mean, that's, that's a pretty big, pretty big leap. Yeah, it started that it wasn't just the academic world that, that uh, assailed me. I was also facing, at the same time, a huge internet leftist backlash against me. Uh, I mean, I had, I mean, I can't even tell you how many people, I mean thousands, really. Uh, if I really count them, it's definitely into the thousands who denounced me. I had been a, a member of a loose organization called uh, Insurgent Notes. It's a left communist group. And they basically conducted a sort of show trial in which they convicted me of various offenses uh, online and uh, through email, and I was I was like, forget it, I quit. You know, convicted. <laughs> yeah, um, they you know because I went on Fox News. This was a this was a this was a an indefensible move. The left should never do that. I um, I criticized the left just as Trump was elected. Uh, all kinds of things like that, and they were so vicious. And not just them, but others, many, many others, many, many others, just denouncing me, swearing at me, saying they would shoot me in the back of the head if they had their way, things Jesus. like that. I saw how, you know, the left claims to be all about egalitarianism, but really at base, they're totalitarian, and I saw it very clearly. It was like there was a monster that had come out from behind, like a mat, you know, like inside of the... Uh, human being there was actually some sort of a creature in there <laughs> that burst forth and made itself known you know it was like uh you know it was like the revelation of the body snatchers you know what i mean it was that it was that clear that i saw this is a this is a monstrous uh 
contingent of people. So did it start to seem to you that there was a connection between this backlash against you and, uh, you know, the sort of Marxist ideology that you previously held? Absolutely. I saw that basically I was undergoing a very soft sort of uh, purge. You know, I was being purged from the, from the ranks in a soft way through nothing but cyber attacks and ver- verbal abuse. And, you know, some of it was in person, but a lot of it was cyber attacks and verbal abuse. And, but it was like very, you know, it was very emblematic of the whole movement. And it made me realize historically what had happened was very much uh, in line with that. So that these people basically proved to me that, you know, would they had if they had the power, a uh, person like me would be dispensed with. Um, they would have just gotten rid of me. I would, you know, I was put in a metaphorical gulag, if you will. That sounds like sounds like some of them might want to put you in a literal gulag. <laughs> oh, they they would love to. And I was, you know, there were people that said to me, uh, they said, if I had my way, you would be put out. You would be taken outside and shot in the head. Um, and they're serious. Uh, if they had power, they would do this. They're they're amazing. There's no uh, respect for human rights amongst Marxists. I mean, well, it's not necessarily an if. We we have several, you know, a good amount of examples that that is often what does occur when uh, you know Marxists to get get take power. Yes, I mean they're just monstrous. And so, so first my my rejection of Marxism came from the political aspect. I told, you know, I noted the totalitarianism of it all, and I saw that really you can't have Marxism. You can't have uh, communism as, as such without force. And uh, they would, you know, people have to, the dissent must be dispensed with some way. Plus, you know, you have to enforce equality, whatever that is, right? Through, you know, reducing others that maybe stand out in some way. They have to be diminished. Uh, They have to be squelched. They have to be crushed sometimes. So I I started connecting it all, started doing a lot more reading, uh, started reading into the history of, you know, the Soviet Union and Maoism. And uh, the Black Book of Communism I read. I read numerous uh, other uh, accounts and started to see things that, you know, literature that was totally occluded to me. I couldn't see it. It was as if it didn't exist. And it's very much the case for Marxists. Their reading diets are so, uh, so channeled to a certain direction that they are unable even to imagine that there are other views and they don't even see the critiques that are out there. They can't really, they don't even occur to them. And they certainly don't read them. Uh, and uh, so I started to read a lot of this stuff. And then I got into a critique of the economic elements. Um, and I, I represent this a, a bit in the book. I mean, I'm not an expert in libertarian economics by any stretch. But after reading Mises and Hayek, I realized that, you know, Marxists claim that the act, you know, the capitalism is an anarchy. Is anarchy. It is. It is complete anarchy, and that you know they call it the anarchy of the market, and that the only rational economy is the socialist planned economy. But I realized that that's actually the obverse of the truth. If anything, Marxism is utterly irrational because it, it depends upon the, dict- the dictation of demand instead of the actual d- demand being represented in the pricing and in the marketplace. It has to be delegated to the masses vis-a-vis some sorts of committees, whether centralized or not. In any case, 
It is nothing like the de economic democracy that is promised by Marxism. Marxism's main claim to be, main reason for being, is its claim to economic justice, right? Uh, economic justice means that people's or people are you know, they're, they're, they're represented, that, that they have power and they are not in, in some way utterly shut out from the, the own ownership of the means of production and the distribution of goods, that they will collectively control this. Well, it turns out that this is not possible and that the marketplace makes it, is the only means by which uh, something like economic democracy can be realized because without the pricing system of the market, you have no way to, to gauge demand for anything and therefore it has to be dictated up from above and therefore it's never rational. It's anything but rational, but it's based on purely on the proclivities of whoever's in charge. Um, so, you know, all that became very clear to me. I think it really speaks to your uh, intellectual integrity and your quest for the truth that once you saw a huge problem with this ideology, you didn't just stop there and say, okay, I reject that, move on. You dug into further, you know, what is right. If, if this Marxist yeah. economics is wrong, well, something else must be right. And that yeah. actually led you down to a broader philosophical path, which I, I think Absolutely. is just, it's very, very commendable that you didn't just, you know, say, okay, well, I can still just, you know, be kind of a leftist and, and I'll kind of ha have my views. They're unrelated to this anti-PC thing because I know many people that are anti-PC but you know that's as, is as far as it goes they might even still hold you know very uh, progressive or what have you views they don't yeah. necessarily make the kind of connections that you're making yeah I mean I just I just have to I'm a kind of a thorough thinker I'm very I, I, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back but I must have a thorough systematic understanding of things I can't live in a piecemeal world you know I have to make sense of things in a way that every piece fits and it all structured properly you know um so, you know, whereas I had thought that that the idea that the market was necessary for individual liberty, I believe that was just purely a capitalist ideology. That's what Marxists say about that. That's purely capitalists who say that you can't have freedom without the marketplace. That's total nonsense. And they say that only only the only the capitalist has freedom. Everyone else is a slave. Well, I, I see it utterly differently now. I think that's completely wrong. And that you, I, and now I do understand the connection between the market and freedom, individual liberty. It's intimately connected because the market is the place where you get to bring your talents and do what you want in the world, uh, you know, and have you know self determination as to what that is, and and therefore exchange that in a in a in a in a, in a, in a marketplace of uh, other, with others. I mean, it's that simple. I mean, yeah, not everybody. Is the, there's no de facto equality economically, but that's not necessary. Uh, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about your book before we let you go here, Springtime for Snowflakes, Social Justice and its Postmodern Parentage. And I, I think we could probably really do a whole other episode or a whole other show, and maybe we will do something down the road uh, simply on postmodernism, because it is a somewhat controversial topic in yeah. libertarianism. Uh, there are many libertarians that, that identify with it and, and think it is very libertarian in, in and of itself. And obviously there are those like yourself that feel the opposite. So, uh, I don't expect us to do a full treatise on, on that, but maybe dig into a little bit about what is the connection here uh, between social justice and, its, and, and, and postmodernism. Yeah, I mean, my, my main thesis in the book is that uh, postmodernism is the, is the parent of social justice ideology and that it, the social justice creed it 
bears all the birthmarks of, so, of, of postmodernism, of postmodern theory. And that is the relativism, the subjectivism, the idealism, the irrationality, the anti-empiricism, and on and on and on. Everything is very clearly connected to postmodern theory. Uh, and you can see this in some of the various sub-movements within social justice, like transgenderism, which I go into in some depth in the book. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, one's gender is really based on belief rather than some sort of empirical facts in the world, um, things like that. And I, I connect all this to deconstruction. So deconstruction and post-structuralism and other elements the postmodernism, postmodern theory is a very variegated uh, realm of theory. And a lot of the pieces don't connect very well. They're not, they don't fit together necessarily. There's a lot of disparate things, but uh, there is, it's an umbrella term coming for a lot of different tendencies, if you will. So I show through my, uh, uh, a tracing of my education in theory in uh, the MA and the PhD uh, programs that I attended, I show the connections between the postmodern theory and the social justice politics of today. That's basically what the book does, with a few swipes thrown at at socialism and things like that. <laughs> you know, I couldn't I couldn't resist that. I have a chapter basically just I had to do it. Um, but yeah, mostly it's a takedown of social justice politics and ideology. And postmodernism is implicated as its parent. All right. Well, we will uh, certainly have a link to that book, Springtime for Snowflakes. That will be in today's show notes. Michael, your story is, is absolutely fascinating. I'm so glad you're able to come on. And again, uh, you know, maybe we'll have you back and, and do something about postmodernism. I've actually been kind of in my head kind of thinking about uh, you know, having a debate on this topic because it has been uh, you know, talked about out there. So, uh, Yeah, I would love to have a debate if, uh, if, if anybody, uh, you can find these libertarians that claim that it's uh, – that it's libertarian, I can explain why it's not libertarian. Well, there, there's a few out there, so I'll do some poking around and, and see yeah. what we can can dig up. But in the meantime, I encourage everyone out there to, to check out Springtime for Snowflakes, Social Justice and its Modern Parentage. And, uh, you know, if you have any Marxist friends out there, you know, Michael is a good good uh, good example of why you shouldn't necessarily give up on them. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Just continue to have those conversations with them. And, you know, if you, if you be nice enough, maybe someday they will uh, they will wake up as well. <laughs> yes, all, but the left will take care of that because, the, you know, they basically basically eat their own and as long as you don't die you might survive to change well it, it is amazing to see the extremism of one ideology actually push its own people into the arms of you know others of and in many times that's sometimes that's just the arms of trump and the republicans but in in many cases like yourselves that is actually into uh, the ideas of liberty and individual rights and all those wonderful things absolutely michael thank you so much thank you so much bye-bye <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but that interview to me was just a doozy. What a fascinating journey of intellectual uh, discovery for Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. And he really did take a major career risk by coming out against campus culture, against the PC culture. And uh, it, luckily, it didn't just turn into another alt-right rejection of PC. It really turned into an intellectual journey. And that's that's really what we're hoping to inspire here on Lions of Liberty. I don't expect to have my interviews give you all the answers in life. I really just hope people will hear some 
something that causes them to go down their own intellectual journey and to start to think about things a little bit differently. And I think this interview with Dr. Michael Rechtenwald is one you can really hopefully share around uh, with friends that have, have a bit of a different idea on things, or maybe friends that agree with you on the anti-PC stuff, but they haven't really taken that full journey and haven't really thought about things deeper. I think uh, Dr. Rechtenwald's example here and uh, his real integrity to really do a deep analysis of his own beliefs uh, is really, really something to share with people. So I really do encourage you to uh, to share this interview, to share all our shows. I think there are just so many important stories being shared, especially you know with the work John is doing on Felony Friday, uh, his last episode on Friday. I mean, if, if you missed that tale, you've got to go back and hear that one. Uh, I'm not even going to describe it for you. Let me just say it's one of the most inspiring, uh, incredible stories I've ever heard uh, back to the last edition of Felony Friday. So just click back in that podcast feed. That's why you got to hit the subscribe button to get all your episodes of Lions of Liberty, all the work we're doing every week, of course, in addition to Felony Friday and this show. We got Brian Sandwich in the middle there with his weekly shot of comedy culture and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. And as of now, at least through the end of this month, we'll be giving you Candidates of Liberty on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We're a -a five-day-a-week show right now, completely for free. But if you don't want it to be for free, <laughs> if you want to pay us money, you can, of course, do that as well on Patreon, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty, where we bring you even more content, if you can believe that. Uh, the Degenerate Gambler Show, if you are not catching the stories on Degenerate Gamblers, if you really want to get to know us better, it's maybe 2% about gambling and 98% about the ridiculous stories uh, that we have faced in our in our college lives and our current lives. So I really do highly recommend checking that out. That's uh, Brian, Odie, and Rico, our regulars on that one. You really got to dig into this bonus content to really get to know the real lions behind the scenes. But for as little as $5 a month, you can join the Pride. Of course, there are higher levels where you can get all sorts of perks like free t-shirts. At some level, you can even even get an advertisement on this very show at the $100 a month level, which is really a steal. So please do check all of that out. And until next time, folks, live long and live free. <laughs>